Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. G'day everyone and welcome to this week's guest, Tom Cartwright. Tom, how are you, mate? I'm very well, mate. I'm excited and nervously anticipating this conversation. Nice. Well, from the uh, conversation we've just had before we jumped on, I've got a feeling this is going to flow nicely. So thank you for being here. Now, I saw one of your posts uh, going back a few weeks and and like I was saying to you, it was like, it was a conversation I'd just had with one of my clients who was getting you know, stressed and feeling guilty about having a drink when she was trying to really improve and all those different things. And it's like, no, no, like it's, it's, you don't want to be shutting off the joy in your life if that's not what you want to do. And there are other ways to do it. And so I made sure I shared that with you, with her, which she loved. And I thought, well, let's get you on and talk about it because I imagine there's a fair few of my clients are sitting in that same position. They enjoy having a beer or a glass of wine and uh, they, they want to keep it at a, at a good level, but they don't want to get themselves to the point where it's having a negative impact. So really timely conversation. And, and I'd love to hear just really briefly what that looks like before we get into your story. I think one of the important things to be aware of for anyone is that the conversations that are be had and the reason why we're living every day is so much more meaningful and deep than did I or did I not drink. And that is really often so often overshadowed by the traditional approaches to alcohol reduction. It's apparently life doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's going on. doesn't matter, you know, what's going on. You're apparently drinking too much. Now we need to focus on that. And we just completely forget the reason why we're here anyway, which is to enjoy ourselves. Yeah. And so I don't say that so anyone can, you know, I always make this joke, like don't let that saying being an excuse to crack a beer now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. a pound of drink, let's feel fresh that I can smash copious amounts of alcohol. No, what I'm saying is that, if you continue drinking as an excuse to avoid you from what matters most, for example, having a conversation about grief or grief or or loss or love or a new job position that you could be going for or getting into a relationship or out of a relationship or conscious parenting, whatever it might be, then we've missed the mark. Yeah. But, you know, passionately, life's hard enough as it is, (laughs) let alone going, oh, I shouldn't have had the third beverage last night, which is what, what I really get passionate about is, you know, at the end of the day, life's about choice and freedom. And if you're using alcohol as a reason to give yourself a hard time, I don't, I don't think that's a good enough excuse. I think you should either drink or don't drink. Uh, figure out a way to be proud of yourself. That's that's always the starting reference point and marker. Are you happy with who you are? And we can work backwards, backwards from there. And if drinking a little bit less alcohol is going to help you with that, great. If it's not, don't even worry about it. Alcohol is an... In- I had a conversation with a client of mine this morning, Ian, and, and he said a great, a fascinating thing. Um, sorry, not a client, a colleague. He said to me, 
Tom, what's funny about alcohol is the question isn't why should we not drink? It's why are we not drinking all the time? <laughs> and it's a great way to look at it because the truth is alcohol is an incredibly fascinating drug and resource. It, it suppresses emotions within us. It helps us enhance emotions. I think it's one of the most legally appropriate peak performance drugs out there. Um, Interesting. You know, and, and I think just being honest with yourself and utilizing, I have a relationship with alcohol these days that I love and respect. What that means is, more from a professional insight, is that Tom is using alcohol to increase his performance in some areas of his life. That's all. Mm, I love that's that. All that, that. That's all I'm doing. It's not It's not to get you off the hook. Traditionally speaking, someone will say, oh, no, you're an active addict in denial. It's just like, <laughs> like come on. Life yeah. is about so much more. Um, yeah. If that's so, a story yeah. you want to run with, then then go for it. But if it's if it's not bringing you joy, try something else. There we go. And I think that's the the fine line between alcohol. I think alcohol is designed to be the icing on the cake, so to speak. It, it used, you know, thousands of years ago, it's come from a traditional um, experience, heightening experience, acknowledging some form of experience in life. It's the icing on the cake. And I just think over time, for some of us, it's no longer the icing; it's the cake itself. Yeah, and that's, I think that's a great way to start looking at your relationships. Like, where is alcohol adding to my experience and where is it now completely interrupting the experience? And that's probably a good starting point for anyone. Yeah, man, so many questions and thoughts. Uh, <clears throat> interesting you talked about performance. So even though I was extroverted, I was a shy kid and, and while not necessarily shy through high school, it definitely had confidence issues. And then when I went to uni and suddenly, like, it's like a pub constantly – then I'm getting this massive spike in confidence. I'm able to have these connections and conversations, which, which I didn't feel confident having before that. So it was a real game changer. But then after, you know, 10, 15 plus years of then, of then it getting to become actually a problem, it was exactly like you described. It's like, well, it was starting to impact my day-to-day. Uh, having a child was one I remember – my uh, eldest rolling off the change table and through blurry eyes, I just grabbed and managed to just get enough jumpsuit to stop hitting the floor. And that was a real moment for me of like, mm-hmm. probably need to be a bit better at this parenting thing. So what was, what was the moment for you where you realized that there was a problem and you needed to do some changes? Uh, pretty similar to yourself in regards to, what got me into alcohol. I, I, I was kind of the opposite. I was quite extroverted and a big people pleaser and had a large dynamic group of friends. Not too much depth in the friendships, just a lot of friends because uh, that was important to me at the time. So I actually used alcohol the opposite, which is still peak performance. I didn't know how to say no. I didn't know how to say no to people in life. I didn't know how to not go to events in life. If I, someone asked me to go, I would always say yes. So I actually used alcohol Years later, I realized this. I was using alcohol to become so intoxicated, to become so hungover, because then I had a reason not to show up the next day. Oh, I had a reason wow. to say no to people. Yeah. Wow. If you can start to become aware of the, the kickback that you get from alcohol after your second drink and like 48 hours after your second drink and start looking through the lens of what am I doing, what am I experiencing, you'll actually quickly start to notice why you're drinking in the first place quite often. Um so, you know, like you, similar to yourself, I got into alcohol as an incredible vehicle, you know, especially in Australian drinking culture. We have this great tribe that specifically, this isn't about passing blame, it's about taking responsibility. And sometimes you have to be aware of how 
things bigger than yourself impact you. That's part of taking responsibility. And there is this culture, the Australian drinking culture, which kind of can look after potential introverts that are looking for more confidence on a Friday night, um, potential people like myself who didn't know that they had any talent in any area other than being friendly with people, uh, insecurities, et cetera, et cetera, to say, you know, maybe someone who's 15 and grieving to say, hey, like, you know, the Australian drinking culture is great at going, okay, that person's struggling with that, that person's struggling with that. Here, let's bring them in. Let's make them feel comfortable and calm and connected and that's what I mean about peak performance. It's incredible asset and resource. It should never be shamed alcohol. It's fantastic, uh, a fantastic uh, tool to be utilized because most of us aren't utilizing it in the right way. Yeah. Um, if, just, just quickly, if you look at any tool or, or medication, if you take too much of it, of course you're going to get sick. That's exactly right. And that's how most things are look like, looked at when it comes to changing your relationship with your health. Like when it comes to eating a bit less sugar, we don't go never have sugar again. When it comes to changing your diet, you're more inclined to work with a naturopath or, or, or a specialist who will say you can have your burger and chips from time to time. Like moderation is key in most areas of life. But traditionally speaking, when it comes to alcohol, the minute someone's like, oh, I should drink a little bit less, you got this option and it's over there and it's a secret meeting and you should never drink again. And people are like, what's going on? Uh, but that's that's a rabbit hole that we might dive into a little bit later. Tensi, yeah. I'll question directly i think so yeah <laughs> and to answer your question directly i think one of the the first points of reference and awareness that like something might need a change i grew up in uh tamarama beach in the heart of the eastern suburbs in sydney uh, new south wales and it, i'd finished my work shift i was working in hospitality great industry to be in if you're a big drinker and i remember finishing my work shift it was a thursday it was about 9 p.m Two hours, three hours before that, my $700 or $800 paycheck had hit the account. It was the same behavior I did every Thursday, which was finish up, lock up the shop. I was the manager of the pub at the time. Lock up the shop, get in the car, drive home. But on the way home, I would always stop at a place called the the Hood Hotel. And it was a pattern I'd been doing every week. And everything within me knew that when I do that, I don't go home until they close. I don't go home till I'm drunk and I don't go home with any money in my account because alcohol mixed with gambling for me. So this one specific night, I think it would have been about 2013 or 2014, I remember driving home and I'm on the street that the pub's on and I'm having the experience that I have every Thursday night, which is, oh, stop into the pub. And on this night, it was different. I thought to myself, no, don't do that. And then something said to me, I said, no, no, stop into the pub. And then I said, no, I don't, I can't do that. I've got something on tomorrow. And something in my body said, it'll just be 50 bucks. It'll just be three beers. And I, and I started to experience this, um, this fight within my own body. Now I wasn't on autopilot of like, Oh, just go to the pub. It wasn't that that's how it had been for years. And I actually started to sweat. And I probably looking back, I was probably having a panic attack as I was driving. I just didn't know that, but I started to sweat, sweat. And I still vividly remember my knuckles were wide as they were on the steering wheel. And I still remember that my breath was so heavy. It was fogging up the windscreen. It was nighttime. It was about 10 p.m. by now. Um, it was fogging up the windscreen. Yeah, it was incredible. And I remember like everything in my body saying, just turn right. And if you can imagine, I'm driving down a street. There's a right-hand turn coming up in about 100 meters. It takes me home. But if I keep going straight, 300 meters up on the left is the pub. And I was in this, now looking back, panic attack, unaware state, completely unable to make my own choice in the moment. And I remember just like gripping the wheel and I'm trying to pull it left and something in me is just holding the wheel straight. And I remember I went and I stopped at the pub 
and I ran the same part. And then 4 a.m. because they are oh, 3 a.m. They shut really late. 3 a.m. I walked out of there, had to walk home, no money in my bank account. And it was the first time I ever thought to myself, I think there's an issue here. I, I think something's going on. Uh, that was the first time that really kind of shook my nervous system. Bit of a wake up call, so to speak. Really hard to accept, but it was what I needed. Mm. Um, I'd love to dig more into the gambling, if that's all right. Uh, <clears throat> I can relate to that. For me, it was like suddenly I'm living at home, I'm earning good money, and I've got all this cash, and I just don't know what to do with it. And so, I don't know if you have that experience, but you you go, oh, I'll, I'll play a bit of like card machines or pokies or whatever, and you have a reasonable win, and you're like, that felt pretty good. So then, next time you put in a bit more, and then it becomes another, like a chasing that rush again of the win. Yeah. And then waking up in the morning just going, oh, checking how much did I actually withdraw. And I used to get my my bank statements in two envelopes because I'd, you know, 50 at a time and then oh, maybe 20 this time. I shouldn't go as hard. And then there'd be three more 50s after that. And then the last entry would be like the service station eating crap food and just just horrific and just think about how much money I just – lost doing that like was was that like i know you said at that point you said maybe got a bit of a problem but but how did the how did that gambling side actually impact you if you were doing your dough on payday every week oh i'm glad you asked because most people know me for changing my relationship with alcohol and helping people with alcohol because uh, that's what i'm really passionate about but to be honest the gambling in the moment caused more pain for me Gambling is a really interesting one. And unfortunately, you know, problems around finances are such a leading cause to suicide. And, um, you know, unlike alcohol, when you're playing around with your money, you're actually, you really are creating a future that you can feel so trapped in because we live in a world, and if you live in a first world country, you know, safety is built off your financial system where alcohol is only an in the moment thing like you can't compound alcohol and say well next saturday it's going to be worse you can always say to yourself i might not but if you say to yourself i just spent a grand tonight that means i owe a grand if that makes sense so you're constantly building like debt alcohol you're not really building debt that might be a really interesting way to look at it but (laughs) does that make sense it does i would i would perhaps argue that you are building debt just not a financial debt maybe a future financial debt uh, but but you are definitely building a debt within your physical body and, and which will touch on further your emotional body as well. Oh, definitely. It's an, such an emotional, you know, debt that you're experiencing. But if you don't really have access to coaching, psychology, mentoring, human behavior, you might not be aware of that. So the money side of things is it creates a logical, physical representation of how bad life is. That's what it does. It creates like an identifiable, measurable marker. When it comes to alcohol, you just stack up past moments and you're like, oh, those are all the things that are making it look bad. But if you go into, I was in debt $30,000 to the Commonwealth Bank because I was asking them for credit cards and then I was cash transferring off my credit card at like oh. a 28 or 32% interest rate, yeah, wow. um, to get money out. And I would, I remember I, I, I always remember the first time I ever played a poker machine, I was doing one set hints. Um, and I thought, well, this is pretty cool. This is a fun little thing to keep <laughs> me distracted from life. And, and they yeah. are like, yeah. They're psychologically designed to keep someone engaged. That's that's what they're designed for. So they just did a really good job with me uh, and what I was experiencing personally, obviously. But, yeah, it only took me about three to four years to rack up $30,000 in debt. 
and that was painful that's that's that was really painful because it was like i can't wipe the slate clean you know when you're when you're a big drinker you hold on to that slate of feeling so terrible and then the minute you're no longer hung over you're already into chasing the next high which is the next drink with the money it's just a constant lurking debt someone knows about it i owe someone um yep so yeah it's a, it's a really interesting one like to answer your question honestly that that was really tough being in debt caused a lot of pain probably what would have been diagnosed as depression at the time um and yeah but being in that much debt and still choosing to be in debt like to be really honest with you and i at that time i'll say i couldn't i change the language now i could have but at that time i did not feel like if i started gambling i could stop i could stop drinking after a while um but gambling yeah if i started gambling i couldn't leave a dollar in the account there was just no way um it was a very aggressive active addiction mm, if, if again, you look at it through those yeah I, I, again i relate to that very much so as well um the the drinking as long as you're feeling okay you're back into it and i was the opposite of you i was like trying to make sure not actively but in the morning, like just forcing myself to feel better because I didn't want to miss a session. Like I was FOMO. I wasn't drinking to miss out in sessions. I was I was wanting to be part of every single one, right? Like I didn't want to miss out on something good. Um, yeah. but the but the the addiction like with the with the gambling, like I said, chasing that rush, the guilt and the shame, and then like you described the dread, because it just keeps playing out. Like you feel with a hangover, you feel better like the next the day after but the money thing just keeps burning at you for for ages right yeah i think when you start feeling the anxiety and the panic before you run the behavior it's a very it's a key identified that there's an issue when you start i think that's one of the most painful places for anyone to mentally be in they haven't even done the bad deed yet and they're already yeah. feeling the pain that they will after i think that's a real key identified that you you know it's time to really look at yourself and ask for some help because that is that is the opposite of choice and freedom that is you haven't even entered the cage so to speak and you're feeling the effects of it that is that is a very that's a very tough place um, yeah absolutely. To, to, know that, to know that you have freedom because you haven't made the choice yet but to indirectly just accepting within yourself that no it's not changing i'm going to do it again it's almost like a, a self-loathing deserving you're really you know we're really talking about what clinically people would say is that active addiction of like, oh, I've just got to drive this nail in the coffin, so to speak. Um, mm. Oh, that's interesting. Self-punishment. Because I'm thinking about it now. Like, I'm, I'd be like, I won't gamble tonight. I, I think I'd even say it to friends and they just laugh. And it's like as soon as I had, as soon as I drank to a certain level, it was like, all right, I'm kind of bored now. It's on. Mm. And then, so then grappling with the, well, how do, how do I even control that? Like, because you add the two together, it's just an absolute recipe for disaster. Yeah, the hardest thing you can ever do to make it, to make life hard on yourself, especially if you're on an alcohol reduction journey or want to change your relationship with alcohol, is look at it through the lens of like <laughs> moderation, which is like, I'll see how I go tonight. It, yeah. it is the hardest concept and approach ever because by the time you've had one standard drink, your, your brain, you think in a different way, your, your commitments that you made earlier have changed. This is the disconnect between what what you're saying to yourself and what you're actually following through on, and it's like um, it's like you know, it's like telling yourself you are. It's like telling yourself to do something and then giving yourself a drug that's gonna you're like you're giving yourself a drug that's gonna indirectly negatively influence you out of that. 
Like I explained it like this to people, I'm like, if you judge your if you judge your ability to stick to your commitments after you've had a drink or after you've slapped fifty bucks through the pokies, it's like judging a fish on its ability to climb a tree. You'll grow up thinking you're an idiot. Yeah. If you judge yourself to stick to your commitments after you've started something that's addictive to you, the chips have fallen. Like you're making it so hard on yourself. Yeah. So true. So you're at that point where, okay, I've got a problem. Like, what was the next step? Like, what did you then do about it? Not much, <laughs> to be really honest. You know, it was just that point. It wasn't, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not an overnight success story. Um, I probably wear that on my sleeve a little bit too much, but uh, it, it was just that moment just to acknowledge and realize that it was an issue was enough because what it meant now, every time I did the problem, it felt worse because there was mm. something in my brain that was going, that's going, but now you're choosing it, but now you're choosing it, but now you're choosing it. And I think it's, it's kind of a stepping stone process when you're in, like when you're running an addictive behavior, step one, you're on autopilot. You beat yourself up, you give yourself a hard time. Somewhere along the journey, you realize you're, you're on autopilot, which means now you're, a, you're in a place of choice. You're highly influenced. You're being really influenced. The sip of the drink, the addictive, the chemicals, the imbalance, the pokies are there. Like We get that, but now you're just aware of it. That's the first, you know, key to any kind of change. 99% of change is awareness. So just to become aware of it. So what happened was I actually started to experience a lot more pain. It wasn't too short after this uh, that I started to experience, excuse me, uh, anxiety. So it wasn't after, it wasn't, wasn't too long after this experience, Ian, that now I started to begin to show symptoms of mental illness, so to speak, um, anxiety, panic attacks. I remember a couple of months after this moment, I had to be rushed from a nightclub to the hospital because they thought I had a collapsed lung. I was so intoxicated and it must have been, looking back, it was a panic attack, um, but they thought I had a collapsed lung. Uh, so that was a kind of moment, like waking up after having been, you know, jammed Valium down my throat and whatnot and my parents there and like just what is going on here and them suggesting that he doesn't have a collapsed lung, he's fine, he's having a panic attack. <laughs> um and to have a panic attack whilst I was doing the thing that I loved, that really rocked my nervous system. Like, give me a panic attack on Monday before I go to work, please. But don't give me one when I'm doing my thing. I'm Tommy Carter. I'm a big drinker. I'm a gambler. I love this. This is my thing. So I think that was a big wake up to be like, oh, wow, to have it there when I'm in my zone, so to speak. That really shook the system. Um, and then about six months after that, oh, no, actually, to be really honest with you, I didn't know I was going to share this, but I'm, I'm more than happy to. In between there or some time along those two moments and six months, I was sitting in my car, it would have been about 20, had a bottle of whiskey, and I had my first suicidal thought. So I was never aware that I had any, I was experiencing any clinical issues, call them clinical or not, just I wasn't aware of mental health. I didn't know that. All I was aware of, some things weren't apparently right. So I was sitting in my car and I was on a really steep hill and at the bottom of the hill there's cliffs that go off into the ocean and I just had the thought. I was just like, ah, oh, I could drive this car off the cliff. Um, and then I just sat with that thought for a while and then I sat in the dilemma of unfortunately that suicidal thinking of like, hang on, is that true? Did I just think that, which is just a you know an unaware thought that's popped up and it's not true? Or am I thinking that because I'm thinking about doing it? So then I got kind of, and I was intoxicated, then I got stuck in the whole overwhelm of like, and I really started freaking out in the moment because I was like, hang on a second, is this true? Is this me just making it up? Or is there something, am I not safe? Should I get out of this? What is going on? So that was the first time I had an experience like that. Um, 
And those were kind of like the three milestones or the three reference points that I look back on. And I think, I think that's when I started to realize that something was wrong. You know, it wasn't looking at the, the, the credit card statement and thinking like, oh, God, I heard 28,000 bucks. That's tough. It was those real deep panic attack, rush to hospital, suicidal thought, drive car off cliff. That's not Tom. What is going on there? So mm. I realized there was two versions to me, so to speak, like this happy-go-lucky, I'm fun, I love life, could drive a car off a cliff. Um, that was enough that, to give me some insight and awareness. Yeah, wow. You, you've touched on something really powerful there because it's what a lot of people experience, right? The the identity that you had, if it's linked wow. to that, then it's fine, right? And so you just run with it. It's not happy about it, but it's like, well, it's just part of, that's just part of who I am. But then you start to get awareness and you change and people think that that first bit, okay, well, it'll be good, but actually then it, at first, feels like it gets harder. It's almost like before things go up, you've got to go in this dip and it's like, oh, yeah, now I'm starting to notice like physically I'm, I'm not right. I'm starting to notice other strange symptoms. I'm starting to notice all the other things that you talked about. And so I'd love to hear how did, were you able to go through that dip and then be able to move forward? Because I think this is something that people will get heaps out of because I'm sure many of them listening to this will have been in that. They're like, I'm trying to get better here and I'm feeling worse. Like, what do I do now? So what did, mm-hmm. what did you do? It's such a good point to bring up because it's not often spoken about, which is the whole, it, it, just because it doesn't feel good doesn't mean it's not right. And that's what a lot of individuals can freak out about, especially with traditional addictions like gambling and drinking. You can stop doing them and it gets worse. Your symptoms gets gets worse and you think, what is going on here? So you can just run back to it. Um, knowing what I know now, looking back, I, I was it was more so an identity crisis than anything else. My body was so afraid to maybe be someone that I'd never been before. Mm. So I was actually... I'm not even joking. I would look at it through the lens of I was about to grieve the person I pretended to be for so long, which was debilitatingly painful for me. I had no idea how to do that. I think a lot of us fall into the trap of going, I feel great. I'd love to be a non-drinker. I wish I didn't gamble. And we wish and hope and desire this version of us that we've never been. But individuals don't understand that your ego, which is the part of your brain that recognizes itself, can only recognize itself based off who you've been in this moment in the past. So it's a facade to say, I know who I'll be when I've overcome challenge and problem. But if you haven't, you're actually entering what's called, what I call the void, the unknown space, the loss, the darkness. You have no idea who you are. And that, I hope it's okay to share like that depth. That would be what my body yeah. was experiencing, calling out for like, this is freaky. This You're panicking. You're freaking out. Go back to being the person you were. Just pretend that you're happy. Just keep doing it. So I was starting to enter that void. Otherwise known as when you said identity earlier, yeah, I'm actually getting really close to start grieving the loss and the identity and shedding the skin that it's okay to no longer be that person. Um, that's a so really, good. that's a really painful spot to be in because usually when it comes to letting go, I'd love your thoughts on this, but usually when it comes to letting go, the ego throws up or your brain throws up an assumption that if you have to let it go, it means it was wrong or you were wrong. Um, and that's yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe wrong. Like when when you said it, I'm thinking it's more around what will I lose. Mm. Like the different times where I've stopped drinking. So so for our second lockdown in Sydney last year, six months, I didn't drink that whole time. Whereas most people would were going harder to get through the time. I'm like, well, oh, 
what, well, I'm just at home on my own. Like, what's the point? And so I was like, there's part of me there after six months going, I don't know if I'll ever go back. It was like, it was, it was having that good an influence on me. But then you go out to a few different places and you're like, actually, I'm, I'm punishing myself and I'm losing something that I enjoy. So why am I doing that? Like, I, I used to drink a lot, right? And now just being able to drink in moderate, I have no interest in going hard because it just doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good at the time. It doesn't feel good on the, on the next day. So it's, it's that loss thing. Like I've quit a heap of different um, foods over the time because mm. I just haven't agreed with my system. It gets to the point where it's like this is actually to my detriment. So I'm talking caffeine. I'm talking a whole lot of different foods which are – so sometimes when I go out, it's like what, what am I going to eat here? Like it's, it's hard to navigate. But the drinking thing, I got to the point where it wasn't having a detrim- detrimental impact and it wasn't creating a loss, but it wasn't like you, kind of what you're describing with, with um, the um, drink less, feel fresh. It's like – but it, I'm losing something by trying to not drink altogether. So getting mm-hmm. that balance right as for every area, but that in particular we're talking about today, about alcohol, it's actually been such a, almost like a relief, right? Yeah, well, it's liberating. <clears throat> so liberating yeah, to realise yeah. that you can choose. You know, it's so liberating to realise you can have the choice and freedom that you are more powerful than any external resource in the world, that you can utilise resources. They don't need to utilise you. At the end of the day, if someone wants to be aware of whether they're drinking too much or not or having too much caffeine or whatever the external substance is, you yeah. just got to ask yourself, do I enjoy being in my head and my own body? Do I enjoy that? And if you're drinking a lot, chances are you don't. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with that at all. If you rather being in a place that's not naturally you, drugs and alcohol are the way to do it or any other you know, addiction, so to speak. But there comes a time where probably what you're experiencing and what I've spent so long learning how to master trust is yeah, learning to enjoy being in my body more so than not. And that's when you really start to... Even if you do have a drink, you normally only have a couple because yeah. you start to, you know, you start to create um, change within your head, and it feels uneasy. It doesn't feel nice. I don't oh, know that's it. it. Yeah, that's it. It's like it's a completely different feeling in the body. And in the past, I didn't have that feeling in the body. I didn't have an awareness around the feeling in the body where you've actually gone too far. Because I always mm-hmm. have these blackouts, right? And I'd like people would be talking to me. Um, they'd, They'd be having conversations about things I'd done. Sometimes they were apologising to me. Sometimes they were kind of like, "Mate, what the hell? What the? What are you doing?" And I'd be like, oh, "I don't know what you're talking about." And so, so that was a moment for me. Like, okay, I need to, I need to have an awareness. Actually, actually, at first, it didn't actually change anything. But it was when you hit those sort of big moments where you're like, "Shit, maybe I'll share some of those on the future episodes." But um, <laughs> yeah, where, where you just wake up and go, "Oh God, what have I done?" Mm. Some of those weren't enough to to stop me or slow me down, but but there did come a time, and maybe that's where the having children thing comes into it. Um, but you just touched on there something there. It's like if you don't have a problem with it, that's fine. It's like it made me think of um, something I wrote down when you were talking at the start. I don't know if you're familiar with Steve Kotler's work. He does a lot of work around flow, but he does he, one of his books is called Stealing Fire, and it's like uh, the human pursuit of um, oh now the language has left me. Uh, of altered states and it's been happening for millennia right finding different ways to alter our mental state whether it was to for greater awareness for deeper thinking for healing processes and he talked about like we've been doing it like 
people used sound so music and tapping they used movement and of course they experimented with different foods and and so on and there is positives in these altered states because it can create a window into something that you wouldn't have access to otherwise so i'm interested to hear your thoughts on on that but how you would do it getting the balance right i mean we talked before we came on about like you know some of the sort of deeper spiritual stuff well we call the alcohol that's um, the uh, fermented or whatever it is alcohol spirits right well wh why do we do that because in in the right amounts it can give us a deeper connection with that other world right the inner world mm. to go off what you're asking in, a, in an odd way i love one of the one of my favorite things to do in life love it is to play a game of golf with my beautiful dad and then have a cold beer with him i just love it it, it is one of the ultimate experiences Back in 2014 or 15, when I was told that I was an addict, had alcohol and gambling issues, I was told by a GP, um, you'll never be able to have one drink without having 20. You'll never be able to break the addiction. It's not how it works. You've got to get to AA. You've got to give it up altogether. Like telling this to a 20-year-old, 23-year-old kid is just not what is needed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then giving me a bottle of antidepressants just wasn't yeah. the right cue for me. It's good for a lot of people that it suits. That's the, you know, the conversation is contextually appropriate for who wants this message. Yeah, um, but it's just interesting that he's gone from, he's taken you from one addiction here, take this one, which, you know, that's a, whole, yeah. that's a whole other subject. Oh, no, look, they're just two mind alterers. They're just doing different things. They're going to be just as reliant on both of them. Um, you know, at the time I developed an addiction to Valium too. Couldn't sleep without Valium. Uh, I remember at the time I used to, you know, like a toiletries kit you'll take a, away. I used to, almost like back then I used to take a mini one of those around didn't even have like prescription drugs just a packet of Panadol packet of Nurofen anti-inflammatories and just a couple of other things it was just like I just need these things just in case something happens um but yeah to answer your question or to go on from what you mentioned a minute ago which is the difference between moderation is when I was told those things I've got a little bit of an FU mentality. Um, <laughs> uh, I like to prove people wrong and, and prove systems wrong. And I, and I kind of like to do that from the sense of or the frame of like understanding that we are powerful beyond measure. We can trump and break most, if not anything, we ultimately want want to break. Um, and there's a great quote out there that says, in order to know where your limits are, you got to be able to push past them. Uh, or you got to be willing to push past them. And I remember one of the, one of the goals that I had back in 2015 when a GP told me I could never drink again is I actually made, if I can be straight down the line here, I actually made a commitment to myself that I was going to learn how to break addiction to the extent that I could have six beers and stop, not two, not three, six. Because to me, I, I thought to myself, I can't have one beer and stop, let alone six and stop. Like by that stage, you're drunk, you're, you're incoherent, you can't stop. So I made a commitment to learn how to do that. I also made, made a commitment to learn how to, um, take other drugs if I wanted to and stop as well, like um, the party drug cocaine, because uh, I was told as well aggressively, like, like that's definitely one you can't have. Like, you know, you've got these these different classifications of drugs where individuals like, just don't dabble in it, which I get it. It's an appropriate message. But for me, I thought about things like, do I want to go down the lens of I'm never going to be able to be malleable in certain contexts and environments to see what the environment needs from me and who I want to be? Or do I need to be so rigid that these things in my life can never exist 
and I need to make sure that I delete and make sacrifices in there as well. And I remember one thing I made to myself is, said to myself, Tommy, you're going to learn somehow how you can go play golf, have a beer, and then go home with your dad. And that was, to be really honest, that's not something I knew how to do. My dad probably doesn't even know this to this day, but whenever we played golf and had a couple of beers, when I went home, I parked the car at the bottle shop and I didn't go home till midnight. It was I could not have half a beer and not go out all night, spend all my money. It was impossible at the time. Looking back, I'm like amazed saying it. I'm like, wow, I can't believe it was that bad. It sometimes, you know, it's been a long, long journey. So it's fascinating to, to think about how it was back then. But yeah, so now I love that. I love that I can live with choice. I love that I can have a beer which does alter my state and I can sit in this euphoric, like it's a constant reminder of like, how good's the choice? You know, one of the things that really upsets me is when I speak to someone and they're, they're living through the mentality of if they get to their deathbed and they can say to themselves, yes, I haven't had a drink since then. I just think if you feel great now, fantastic. But if there's any part of you that's like living in pain and suffering that you have to hit that milestone to prove to yourself that you're worthy, it's going to be a tough slog, really tough mm. slog. Mm. Um I want to touch on something there you mentioned, which I think it's important for, for people, no matter what they're dealing with, and that's the diagnosis. If you choose to buy into a diagnosis, well, then that's that's your identity, that's your new identity, and that's your future. But I'm always a fan of, like, if that diagnosis doesn't f- sit right, then I'm, I'm looking at something else. Like, I got told I shouldn't run again I, I shouldn't play football i shouldn't play basketball i couldn't lift heavy stuff because i just injured so many things in sport until i found a coach who said do you believe that to be true like is that what you want in your life i know i, I want to do that she said well let's see if we can change that and it's like what we can choose like what you were talking about there's a choice she's like yeah and then she started telling me stories about People she'd helped with you know, dived into pools and fractured their neck and all these different things. Every reason not to, but found mm. a reason to, and that changed everything. So well, before we jumped on, you, you mentioned that there was a, a big learning for you around choice and freedom, and that was the divorce of your parents. So so where did that come along this journey, and, and what was the impact of that on your life? Uh, ooh, looking at the time frame. This all happened in about a year. You know, I look back and I go, it was that 12-month period from driving home from the rugby club, having the panic attack, then going to the shop, then realising that I'm doing the thing, and then three months later getting rushed to hospital, and then six months after that, you know, realising that the family was going through a separation. Uh, And something within me, or the lesson and the learning that I just felt that I understood at the time, the lesson and the learning that I just feel that I understood at the time was uh, nothing is set in stone. Uh, Happiness is not locked in. It's not a schedule. Uh, There's no way to get around the uncertainty and adventure of life. Life is to be lived in the moment. Um, I think from seeing my parents divorce, I kind of got a glimpse into what was going on behind the scenes and I saw a bit of truth. And from that, I got a reflection into myself that I was projecting to the reality a certain thing, Um, you know, and and from seeing them go through a divorce when on the surface, everything got great, happy, married family, four thriving kids doing well financially. And and to see that 
just change. I'm not saying it was a bad thing. I'm not saying it was a good thing. Just to see that dissolve and completely change, kind of got a reference point of like, what does that mean I can change? What's going, like I was on this, you know, habitual repetitive process and I'm like, well, if that's able to change, then maybe I can change. And it was actually within weeks from understanding and hearing that there was a divorce happening that I that I went to my first specialist ever. Uh, my mum actually recommended me. I said, Tom, a few months ago you had that panic attack and, you know, me and your father are going through these things and I see this person and do you want to go see them? Like, <laughs> you know, I was really standoffish at the time, like yeah. F this and F that and I don't need anyone. But, but yeah. I went to see the, um, I went to see the specialist. Uh, so I think the combination of seeing the family change, dynamic change, and then getting to the specialist within a few weeks, things really started to open up or change from that consultation, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's powerful. And I, I think it's a, a great thing to highlight is like even in those moments which are challenging and difficult, there is always an awareness that comes through with that and like it's interesting that in that moment you still saw that opportunity as a choice and an opportunity for change and it really resonates with me because that was the same when, when my dad passed. It's like at his funeral going, like, what am I doing with my life? Like, it's such... <laughs> Even in the depths of pain, you can find those moments. So what was that experience like then going from that to, okay, I need to do something about this. I'm going to go see someone. Like, was, it, was there no doubt in your mind that that's what you are going to do? Or was there, did you need some convincing? Uh, well, going back to what you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is on the lines of diagnoses, being diagnosed, being labelled, so to speak. Oh, you should never train again. Don't do heavy lifting. Um, I really resonated when you said that. I've got this really rare erosive arthritis in my sternum. I heard the same thing. Like, don't do sports. Like, what a weird thing to say to someone, <laughs> especially young, looking at you, energetic, enthusiastic person. Like, surely there's so many things that we can do. Um, just so hear those, hear those blanket, blanket statements. I think we all want to be aware that we don't have to take them on. And the other thing to be aware of, I was having a conversation with someone this morning or a few hours ago, and I said to them, I said to them, when it comes to labels. People often ask me, often they say to me, so Tom, they lean and they go, would you say that I'm an alcoholic? <laughs> and I say to them, answer this question first. What are you going to do with the answer? <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> what are you going to do with the answer? And they go, what do you mean? And I go, well, do you, are you looking for an answer to justify why you should maintain this problem? Or are you looking for an answer to justify and make sense to why you've got it and have a reason to let it go? And I think that's the biggest misconception with labels is yeah, it ain't right. being labeled. It, it, it ain't being labeled. It's what do you use it for? That's all it is. It's an identity thing. What are you using it for? And I know people that go, you know, I was la labeled an addict when I was 20. I haven't drunk since. And I go, geez, fantastic. I'm so grateful they were labeled an alcoholic. And I you know mates of mine that have been, and, and people I know that have been la labeled 15 years ago, alcoholic. I go, why are you drinking still? And they go, oh, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Yeah, right. it's not the label. It is not the label. It's Ooh. it's the it's it's it, it's what you do with it. It's what you utilize with it. And if your label isn't working for you, it the, it's the wrong label. Like you said, the label of don't train again wasn't working. It was creating either what I saw was like confusion or overwhelm or disgruntled or like no, that doesn't feel right. It wasn't working for you. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah people people just hold on to the labels for far too long. Hmm. Well, I guess it's a it's a safety. Uh, almost like default. It's like, no, this is now comfortable for me. I, I don't want to do anything that's going to take me out of that comfort zone. 
it's like, well, what, what if you could push the boundaries of that and actually find that when you, if you don't have to change the whole thing, you don't have to, I, I think most things, it's never about throwing the whole thing out. It's like, what can you tweak so that it does work for you? Because that's where you're going to get the best result. It's like, it makes me think of the, what you learn when you're, when you're learning coaching. It's like, if you take them to panic zone, that, that's not a helpful place to be. But if you just gently stretch them out of the comfort zone that they're in, well, then that's when they're going to feel the fulfillment, the satisfaction, the, the joy, the adventure of life. And so I don't know mm-hmm. what your thoughts are about that, but it, but it's the to me it's the subtle yeah go. <laughs> oh, <laughs> subtle come on. Kiss, right? <laughs> yeah, Ian, that's why we're here. Look, I would say this: if you're going to abstain for the rest of your life from alcohol, don't do it because you have to. Do it when you can, which means people. There's a huge misconception. The, the assumption is when I say to someone, you should be able to drink it whenever you like. They always rebuttal with, but you can't say that to an alcoholic. The journey isn't drinking or not drinking. It's just making sure you're choosing not to. I, I don't think it's relevant or appropriate for anyone to go, I don't drink because I can't. Yes, mm. you can. I could sit down with an alcoholic and say, here's a bottle of Jack, chain them to the table and say, you and I are sitting here for eight hours until it's dissolved and then you can go to work. Like there's there's things that we can do to suggest that you're going to break your path. And they'll go, oh, but it wasn't my choice and I, was, I needed to. And all these things you hear. A lot of people that we work with at Drinkless Feel Fresh end up going, yeah, I kind of, alcohol doesn't really suit me. I'm not drinking that much or I'm never going to drink again. But they do it when they realize they're able to. They do it when they have a relationship with alcohol that's pretty functional, so to speak. And they go, oh, and that's choice. That is liberation. That is power. That is playing the game of life, playing in the gray zone of being influenced and attracted. Like one of the ways I say it to people is if someone abstains from alcohol because they don't trust themselves when it comes to alcohol, you're not, you haven't developed trust within yourself. In fact, if I'm their coach or mentor, I say to someone, when's the last time you tempted yourself to have a drink and chose not to? And if they go, oh, I don't tempt myself. Go, okay, well, I'm yet to see the behavioral trait of self-trust in you. And they say, what do you mean? And I go, I want to have a conversation with you when you give yourself permission to have a drink, but you don't. Or you say to yourself, you know what, I could have a drink today, but I'm choosing not to. Or you have the you know, life and character, character building itself is built in when you're tempted to act, but you choose not to. When someone is, when someone can, let's look at relationships. Relationships is a great one. Someone who is tempted to do things, but chooses not to, what you're saying is that you can trust their character because they're tempted, so to speak. The devil is there to tempt them. And I think when it comes to alcohol, a lot of people play this game, no, I can't touch it. No, I can't touch it. And I, I, you know, with a chance of sounding judgmental here, I don't believe you're looking at someone from a place of trust. They don't trust themselves so much that they won't dance with the devil. Um, and, and, and I think that can be, you know, that, that can be really detrimental to people to, to treat themselves that they're that powerless against something like, I was about to hold up my sparking mineral water as if it was a beer because <laughs> of what we said earlier. Um, yeah, so that's, that's my little mini rant there is, you know. Mm, that's a good, to, good rant. When um, someone can choose to no longer want alcohol in their life because it doesn't suit their life, that is a much more powerful space than if I drink, I'm a stuff up. Um, I wanted to ask another question about your parents' divorce, but I'll come back to that because I wanted to ask something just about what you just said then. Firstly, you just referenced the can that you're drinking now. For those who are listening, they wouldn't see it. But but I, before we hit record, I'm like, 
is that a Canadian club? <laughs> I'm thinking, surely he's not come on here with a drink. <laughs> and you were like, oh, actually, maybe that's a good idea. Maybe we can uh, get some controversy going. And <laughs> I, I went on a podcast a few months ago, and the podcast is called Whiskey Webinars. A couple of business guys doing incredible things, and they're called Whiskey Webinars, and they all get around, and everyone gets their nice vintage whiskey. And they called me before the podcast, they said, Tom, would it be appropriate if we had waters tonight? I said, please do not have waters. It'll do a massive disservice to the reason why we exist, which is moderation, choice, freedom. Uh, at the time, I said to them, guys, I got my, my best friend's wedding. I'm the best man. I'll probably be up there doing my speech with a glass of real fine whiskey myself. Like, come on, play, playing into this game of right, wrong, good, bad, do or don't. Maybe in your line of work, you've either overcome a relationship or you haven't. Like these black and whites, that's just not, it's not relatable, let alone realistic. Yeah, love it. Love it. Um, so you mentioned trust there. And what I've learned about trust is the deeper we trust ourselves, then the, the deeper the experience and the more we can discover about ourselves. And you mentioned before that you, you know, you're the first person you saw for mental health, um, you said, I said, oh, was it a coach? And you went, well, you could call it a coach. And then you use a description, you went, that might be too much. And I'm like, no, no, I think my audience will like this. And you said they were energy medicine specialists. So tell us about the, edis, the energy med, medicine specialist at the country. Um, because to me, like, this is where we deepen trust in self so we can actually make better decisions is this sort of experience. So tell me about that. I'm laughing with you, Ian, because as you say it, I still remember looking at his white business card and thinking, energy medicine specialist, what a wanker. <laughs> I, remember, I remember thinking of this, this time, this young, charismatic, hard kind of kid that wouldn't show his emotions unless he was drunk. He got emotional, which is an interesting one we might talk about. Um, anywho, I, I, I went to see him. Uh, and it was because my mother influenced me to, and she, she, I remember the situation. I was lying upstairs. I was living in the family house. Yeah. I think I was 22, 23 years old at this time. And she said, Oh, Hey, would you like to go and see this David guy? I said, what? She said, Oh, he's this, uh, uh, what are they called? Naturopath. He's like a naturopath, life coach kind of guy. Didn't say those words to me. The energy medicine specialist just said naturopath, life coach kind of guy. Anyway, he's just good at helping kids figure out where they want to go. And she was trying to like say it in terms that I would appreciate. Yeah. And I remember lying on the couch, hung over at the time. I was like, oh, mom, not today. We're going to say something <laughs> like that. And she said, oh, okay. And she said this to me. She said, I just want to know if you're all right. And as always, traditional style man at the time, it's like, yeah, I'm fine. Why? And she said, oh, well, it's Sunday morning. And last night, you didn't go out with friends. Red flag for her. Wow. I'm not going out with my mates. That was a red flag that I didn't go out and, and, and do my natural thing. I still drank at home that night, but I didn't go out with my friends. And so that's interesting because that's a red flag for her. And she goes, oh, well, I was just concerned because you always go out on Saturday night. Um, and I said, oh, okay. Yeah, no, I just didn't feel like it. And she walked away. And just immediately I thought to myself, I didn't go out last night. And I got messages from people to go out and I thought to myself, that's weird. I didn't look at it through the lens of, to be honest, of like, oh, I'm doing good things. Maybe I'm getting, maybe I don't want to drink. I didn't. I actually looked at it as a massive alarm bell. Mm. I thought to myself, why have I not done the thing that I wanted to do? And just something in me, I don't know if I realized that I wasn't happy or if maybe I accepted a little bit that I was playing a bit of side. I'm not sure what it was, to be honest with you, Anne. I just remember the next, later that afternoon or the next day, I said, 
what's his number and what happens. Uh, and, and that was it. I'm not going to fluff it up and say I had this moment of like, I'm going to get the help. I just kind of had nothing else at the time. I no longer mm. had, you know, I just felt like, and it also wasn't like this depression or debilitating, like, you know, I'm no good. I was still walking around the house, still doing my thing. It was just, I was just open to something, I guess. I was just curious. I had no idea what was going to happen. Um, I'm grateful. I take after my mom in a lot of aspects like that. She's always been really open to trying new things. So I think I took after a bit of her, uh, that character from her. Uh, so I booked a session, so to speak. A session. I'd never heard of that before. I didn't really understand. I knew that, remember, a couple of months before, the GP diagnosed me with antidepressants. I had suicidal thoughts. I threw the depressants in the bin so the label didn't suit me. So I kind of knew that didn't work. Uh, so, yeah, I booked in a session and I went to speak to him and then, yeah, I had a moment that I'll never forget. Mm, okay, we'll get to that. But first I just want to unpack something there because it's like you said there, so when you, you um, your parents got divorced, like through a very positive lens, but this moment with your mum was a short time after the divorce. So had, did you see that as like, well, maybe that had influenced you at that time or had you not sort of joined those dots? Mm, it's an interesting question. I probably haven't answered that before or pondered on it all too much about connecting the dots. Looking back, it just, I don't know, you know, I don't want to call it stars aligned. It just, I don't know how to say it. It just happened. Like it just, I get it's nice to understand how it happened and how I went about it. It just worked. She just asked me on the right day. Um, I knew change was happening. Things were debunking and falling apart around me, so to speak. At the end of the day, what was always working wasn't working. And I think I just gravitated towards, I'm actually really, uh, part of my identity that I've created, I'm very malleable malleable so i'm very good at beating myself into the shape that's needed to survive um and so i think a little bit of that came into play it was like well i'm not doing this you know drink heavy piss up gambling thing now i'm sitting here and depressed but i don't want to go down the depressing line and be diagnosed as a depressed alcoholic so like i don't know like looking at it now it's like what else was i supposed to do i didn't want to go up to the bar and do the same thing i didn't want to go down the clinical view so i think something in me was just like okay i'll try and see what this door opens because these doors are all shut. <laughs> mm. I'm going to keep prodding if you don't mind. Please. So, so what? So when, so when you go through that moment with your parents' divorce, what was there an overriding emotion? Like was there like frustration, anger, sadness, denial? Like what, what was the experience like from an emotional perspective? Uh, emotional upheaval the night that I found out, because as most big drinkers do, you find out this stuff when you're drinking because you're always drinking. So I was quite intoxicated. I was at a place called um, The Sheaf down in Double Bay Hotel and I got a phone call and it was from a cousin or someone. Did you hear what's happened? And your mum's packed up all her stuff and left. And, um, you know, in the moment, great, now I've got a justification. Now I can really drink tonight. Like just I took it like that, but I broke down and it was – teary and sad that night i think i punched a couple of walls broke some knuckles just did the whole young um emotional expression because i'm intoxicated thing but at the same time accepted it immediately unlike the rest of my family there was something in me that was like oh this will be great which is weird which is weird looking back now that i know what i know and i'm a coach and specialist i think i've always been quite intuitive into the lens of what's really going on i just closed that off for a long time due to alcohol um but yeah, it was a, it, it was a 
a difficult time, so to speak, in regards to, uh, how would I say, it was emotional, it was tough. Oh, but, but at the same time, I was more concerned about what other people were thinking and what other people were doing. Um, I was more concerned about, uh, yeah, how my mum was doing, how my dad was doing, how my brothers were doing. I wasn't generally that overly concerned with um, how I was doing, if that makes sense. I always felt more pain for other people than myself, which could be a facade, <laughs> but probably a conversation that we could either dive in today or at a later date. Um, so that's always been like a really interesting uh, experience for me. I know there might be a technical issue. So I'm just going to keep delivering value until Ian's back. Uh, so, yeah, the divorce kind of brought up those emotions of sadness and grief. Um, it was quite um, pretty debilitating in regards to just like how could this happen. But as I said earlier, at the same time I accepted it, I thought it was the best thing, not the best thing, the best thing to happen in regards to like it was meant to happen. I don't mean <laughs> I said that backwards. I shouldn't have said it like that. At the time, I thought that it was it was it was how it was meant to be, so to speak, if that makes sense. It was just supposed to be that way. It was going to be good for everybody in the long run. Um, and looking back, I think it's one of the catalysts that definitely supported me to grow and to grow up. I think if my parents stayed together, I wouldn't have grown up. I wouldn't have been through the changes that I've been through. Um, yeah, it was definitely noticing and being aware and seeing the parents go through that that opened my lens to, you know what it is? I'm kind of waffling in. I figured it out. Here's what it is. And I knew this. I just lost it today. What I saw was my mum uh, go and create the life that she always wanted. And that was a reference point for me to back it and do the same thing. So it's interesting because I kind of followed in my mum's footsteps. She stepped out. Uh, to create the life that she always wanted, no matter how scary that would have been. I can't imagine how scary it would have been, um, you know, especially having four sons or quite close in age. Um, so just seeing that happen and seeing her step out was enough for me to say, you know what, maybe I can step out, maybe I can go and live life on my own terms, so to speak. Excuse me. Pretty soon after that, um, yeah, pretty soon after that, I went to the energy medicine specialist, uh, <laughs> which I thought was such a wank, but I was just being a dick at the time, a young dick. Uh, and I remember having my first ever consultation with the individual. And as a young, kind of hard, happy-go-lucky, F you, I'm happy, I don't have a problem with alcohol, um, it was really vulnerable and uncomfortable for me to be there but as i said earlier i just wanted something to create change something to help me um through the moment he's back yeah you just carried on without me did you mate i thought i'd keep rocking the show and just act like it was my show so i kept rocking out and i started i started just diving straight into the energy medicine special and i was about to share what happened when i got there so i'm glad you're back because you might not want it <laughs> <laughs> 
I, it wasn't, I thought it was internet, but actually everything else is still on. I think my laptop just shit itself. So obviously what you're about to talk about, uh, it needed to be prepared for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect. The laptop's like, wait, freeze. Um, yeah, I kind of just answered your question, uh, which was along the lines of what was that experience like emotionally when the parents broke up? And I was telling your listeners, just in case you don't want to edit this, I was just telling them um, that, yeah, it was tough, but at the same time I accepted it. I knew it was right. The lesson that I took, and I'm forever grateful to my parents for this, the lesson I took was that your happiness can't be dependent on someone else's. And for my mom, being happily married for that long um, with four sons to get up and leave, I didn't look at that as if like it was a bad thing. I looked at that through the lens of like, shit, you must want something pretty bad because that is like, so, that would be so difficult to do. I knew at that age, even being 20, I was like, that must be so hard for you, mom. Um, so I think as well, I, I kind of saw my first reference point of lean into the discomfort, do the hard thing. And I think that's what really challenged me to say, you know what, I'll go and speak to a specialist, even though I think they're probably a wanker and they can't help me. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then the sign on his desk confirmed what you already thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so tell Look, us. <laughs> if you've never been to a specialist before or had an emotional conversation, let alone a logical one, like, oh, are you happy in your job? to get into a room and someone, a grown man say, take your shoes off and, and lie down and I start wanting to play around with my feet, like not touching them, but with energy in the meridian lines through my body. Like that was a weird thing for me uh, to experience. But um, yeah, very grateful, good friends with the guy. His name's David Flakler. Um, incredible what he does. Uh, yeah, it was an absolute game changer. But as you said earlier, like it's through sometimes that darkness or that real pain points that you experience those level of awareness. It was probably the most painful emotional conversation I've ever had to have with someone to be in that room. But now looking back, I'll always be grateful that I had it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think anyone who's thought about it and maybe dabbled, it's like you at the time it may feel uncomfortable, but you never regret it in the long run because it because just opening up and allowing yourself into that sort of space it always ends up in a better space oh mate it was the first time i'd experienced vulnerability like the depth of vulnerability i'd never understood what it meant to be vulnerable and open and just let someone see who i thought i actually was uh yeah it was an it was an incredible moment he's very good at what he does actually in the first session he knows like i know these days it's probably going to be a bit touch and go this young kid's probably going to think i'm an effing wanker and not want to be here so he actually said halfway through the first session he said tom we make a promise i said what's that <laughs> and he said we have three sessions if, if you don't want to do that we wrap up now i won't charge anybody you can go it's been lovely to meet you but if we finish this session today you're going to come back for two more would you be up for the challenge or he said something that kind of hooked my ego like you know yeah, you up yeah. for the challenge and i just remember saying to him okay sure um and so i went back another time just kind of a normal conversation but it wasn't until the third time i went back there'd been enough um respect built and enough trust i guess uh and i'll always remember it um he just was having a conversation with me and then he just broke my state by just asking me a random question that kind of got me off guard and we're having a conversation and he just stopped and looked in my eyes and he said who are you and i went you know played that card of like that's a weird thing to ask her what do you mean and then he rolled his wheel his chair that had wheels on it closer to me and he said who are you 
And the second time he asked me, and like, I don't know if you've experienced one of these before, but I was so close to punching. Like I was a young guy, I used to drink a lot. I got in a fair few fist fights at the time. So I knew what it meant to punch someone. And my knuckles went white again, like they did in the car that time. Um, and my face went red and I like was shaking inside, but he couldn't see it and he probably knew. And then um, and then the third time he lent in and he put his hand on my knee and he just said, it's okay, just tell me who you are. And I can still feel like I feel sick in my throat thinking about it even these days. And I remember just I rebuttaled with, like I was either going to punch him or just share something. So glad I didn't punch him. <laughs> could, have been, could have been terrible. Um, this would have been a very different interview if that was the case. <laughs> yeah, there's bars behind me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I remember I just rebuttaled. I just word vomited like this demon inside me has been wanting to speak for years, and I just rebutted with, I'm the guy you can party with. And I said it so quick. And he said, what was that? And I just went, and I didn't have to say it again. I, I heard myself say what I thought I was. And to me, at the time, I went, that's who you think you are. And this disgusting, overwhelmingly sad emotion just hit me, and I just broke down. And I just broke down with, like, these heavy, wailing, uncontrollable tears, never experienced anything like that before, let alone sober, let alone in front of a man. Um so, yeah, that was like my first real experience of having a conversation that matters. Like that was it. It was just let's just have a conversation that matters. But for me at the time, it was so overwhelmingly fearful um, to understand and realise, is that what you think of yourself, Tom? No wonder why you're having panic attacks. No wonder why you're feeling afraid to not go to a party and stay at home. Your complete identity and everything you think you are is about to go. Of course, you'd be experiencing some huge emotional blocks so to speak. Um, yeah. yeah, first time I ever got up, gave him a hug, and, and I think that was the day my life changed forever, to be honest. Mm. I just want to, for the listeners, just be really clear. It doesn't always go like that, and uh, I'd be suggesting that people like Tom who are like, they just dive in head first, and you're going to get something like that really early on because you're ready for that deep, quick change, and I've had a few of those myself, but he would have only known he could go there because – of the experience he'd had with you for three sessions. And for most people, it's a more gentle experience, right? Does that yeah, sort of claim with what, what you know about yourself, that you're, you're someone who's like, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to go, go all in you know, and make this happen, right? Yeah, of course. You know, it, it's different for every individual. I work with clients these days. It can take three months before we have, like, what might feel like an emotionally overwhelming session for someone. Sometimes they're not even – you're never going to get there. It's different for everybody. Yeah. At, at the same time, I look back, it's not – something that wasn't me that's why i do what i'm doing now i've always been in touch with my emotions i've always been okay letting go i just never knew that so i always used alcohol to do it you'd never see me angry or sad unless i was intoxicated so that that was the thing i wasn't learning to be someone different i was just learning to tap into something that i was always using alcohol like i would often be angry or really sad when i was you know drinking which is interesting I just did the same process. I just didn't need six six Jack Daniels. I just needed a good specialist to have a real conversation with me, you know, to get there. I think that's something really important that people should be aware of is quite often the states that you're getting into whilst drinking alcohol is just the state you haven't learned to give yourself permission to tap into sober yet. That's all. If you're feeling really calm and switched off, chances are maybe you haven't learned how to switch off without alcohol. If you're feeling, if you get really angry and get abusive or verbal, then chances are maybe you've got some anger that you want to learn to tap into. And if you get sad and play pity parties late at night, you know, have those DNMs. It's a common thing, by the way. It's not just you. It's not just me. There's 
there's a thing that's called deep and meaningful. We have them when we're intoxicated. Most yeah. people want to have deep and meaningfuls. We just we just don't know how to do it socially. We don't think it's appropriate. Yeah, so good. It allows us to tap into what needs attention, right? And if you yeah, well it, said, so well said. What needs attention? Nailed it. Yeah, and if you look at it as a high performance tool, like you said, it's like nothing's going to shine a light on it more than getting yourself into that state because it all just comes flooding to the surface. You 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 can't control it. Whereas in the rest of your life, you tend to suppress. So you've got a choice, right? This, this emotion is going to find its way out, whether it's an angry response at some time that you don't want it to be, whether it's getting upset at something that maybe surprised you, like someone described <laughs> the Queen's passing and they said, it was really weird. I don't know why, but I got upset. And like we were at the pub, so I didn't want to go into the, the deeper side of it because that wasn't the, the, the mood of the room. But it was like, yeah, probably showing that, that uh, there's probably something that, that that might need attention there. And and if we're going to talk about, like you said, as a tool, then, then it's great. But also get, speaking to someone in a safe place might be the first time that you've done it in a way that isn't a coping mechanism. Instead, it's going to be something that's going to empower you. Mm. Yeah, I think I, I think I walked out of that session feeling better than I've ever felt. Yeah, and that's the thing. Most people associate vulnerability with, with weakness, but anybody that's experienced vulnerability associates it to strength. It's such a funny conundrum of like vulnerability means you're open and you can be attacked. No, vulnerability means you're so open and you know you can't be attacked because <laughs> you're so open. Like, <laughs> yeah, I had shared with him everything, that, which means he'd seen me for everything, so there was nothing he could catch me out on. He couldn't go, I don't think you're actually unhappy, Tom, and me go, yes, I, I'm fine and start drinking. It's like I yeah. just shared openly vulnerable everything about me that I thought that, that encapsulated me. So he's got nothing. He's got no ammunition to, to hurt me because I just open, you know, that's, that's yeah, we're kind of diving into like the energy and the that field. That's what he's, that, that was the special, that's his specialty, energy medicine specialist he wasn't concerned with how much i drank as opposed to the general practitioners this is what happened by the way you might have experienced something like this when i went to the gp three the months beforehand he got a notepad and pen out he said so what are you experiencing uh and i said oh, i don't know my mum's told me to come here i forget i think my mum told me to go there as well and i said my mum's told me to come here she thinks i drink too much this is literally what happened this is my experience he grabbed a pen and paper and said let's see what the weekend looked like so saturday night how many drinks did you have we were saying I don't know, I drank from like 4 p.m. in the arbor to about 6 a.m. the next day. So, oh, okay, how many drinks did you think? And he, we did an exercise where we walked through how many drinks I had. Yeah. And, and even he nearly fell off his chair. He's like, oh, there's no relatability. He's not aware that that's just how young kids are drinking, I'm assuming at the time. Otherwise, I don't know why he would have been so judgmental. But he's like, wow, that's a lot of drinks. That's 24 beers, 16 shots, a couple of cocktails. Like it, on paper, it looks like a lot. But for a big drinker, it's a Saturday night. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know why I was sharing that with you. Oh, that's right. You know, that's a logical game to play. That is the opposite of energy medicine. Energy is what's mm. going on in your body, how are you feeling, why are you potentially drinking. The other approach was like, how many drinks did you have? Yeah, you're probably an alcoholic. This person that I saw, and it's got nothing to do with alcoholism, you're suppressing unhealed trauma. You feel this about yourself. And it's hurting you and causing you pain. <laughs> um, yeah. you're, you're trying to let go of a version of you that you've created for, for 23 years and that's scaring you. And, you, you know, I remember him even saying something, which I think you might have tons to share on, but he said something to me along the lines of like, just so you know, Tom, you're going to, 
he actually said something along the lines of like, it's going to feel really weird because you feel like you'll grieve, you'll be grieving even though you haven't lost someone. And I remember saying, I'm like, what? And he goes, if you commit to this, you're going to be letting go of things and versions and parts of you. Like, for example, you think that you're just someone you can party with. It'll feel like a bit like a grieving process. That was my first gateway and, you know, even access to even understand maybe what grieving meant and the depths of that on an emotional level. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's what it's like, right? There's, there's a part of you that just died, a part of you that you don't need anymore, a part of you that doesn't serve you anymore. And you do, you go through these mini grieving processes. It's probably what we talked about before when it's like there's a little dip and you feel like you're going backwards. It's actually an important step of then going forward. Mm. I, I, I want to dig more into this, but, but first something you said there, it's like there's no judgment. Like that's the important difference. If you're going to go somewhere where they're going to judge you and, and make, you know, comments about what you're doing, it's like that's – I don't see that as helpful. We it's know we're doing that. <laughs> you and me knew we were drinking and gambling. Just having it's someone like, tell us isn't going <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I don't know if you've experienced this when you're coaching, but I reckon pretty close to every person has said something along these lines. This is going to sound stupid or you're going to think this is bad or you're going to think like – predetermining what I'm going to think about what they're going to say. I'm like, I think nothing about that except how do we then move you past it? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter to me. I've been through my fair share of shit. Like I've been sharing enough of it. And even talking today, I'm like, actually, I probably need to share some of those other moments, like waking up in the wrong house, like shit like that when when alcohol's got that bigger grab on you. Like, So if someone talks to me about anything, I'm like, man, I'm, who am I to tell you that, you've done something awful like a man I, we've all got our own stuff don't don't think that you're immune and it's just having that safe place where you can open up and talk and deal with the grief right so so you said oh i don't know what your thoughts are on that it's like people think that that grief is just these big moments and and it is but it's the small moments. It's moments like when I was three, when when I was having a game of football in the backyard with my brother and sister, and 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 I thought I'd won, and then they tell me afterwards that we let you in. Like that just that that is such a big impact on mm. my competitive nature and drive, and an old show you sort of attitude. But yeah. that's the grief we're talking about, right? And that's when working with someone like you said, you mate David there, like that that's what it provides. It provides a safe space. To, to address whatever that was so it doesn't have to have that impact on you anymore. Mm. I think that's so – probably. I'm assuming in your industry you're talking about it all the time because it's so – but it's so relevant, even for so many individuals I know, to understand the grief, as you said, like, oh, hearing that you didn't win. Like it's a collapsing of, a, of something you thought was true. It's not true anymore, which is, yeah. you know, often like when you lose someone physically, like that it's not physically – it's not true that they're physically here anymore. It doesn't mean they're not. It's not physically here. When you said that – it was only shortly after, I think you'll find this pretty interesting, probably what you do, let me know if I'm mistaken, but uh, David, the guy that was working with me about three months into our work together, because after that third session I was committed, I'm like, cool, my life's going to change, and I started going down the progressive moving forward approach. And uh, <clears throat> I remember he asked me a question along the lines of, how are you doing with your breakup? <laughs> and at the time I was like, I'd broken up from my first love. Uh, we dated for two years, and... Um, he said, how are you doing with the breakup? And I remember going, yeah, pretty good. <laughs> and I think I think my mum had told him, not professionally, but I think she told him that I don't think Tom's doing well with his breakup. I didn't know any better. And I just said, yeah, yeah I think I'll, I'll go pretty, pretty well. And um, within the session, I had another 
emotional breakdown, I call them, and I was crying and I'm like, I don't what know why. I, 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 yeah, I remember saying to him, I, I said, I'm so sorry, I don't know why I'm crying. And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, oh, I'm just, you know, I don't know why I'm upset. Sorry about that. I'm like, apologize to him. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, and here's what I said that I think you'll find fascinating. I said, well, I know I'm not grieving her because I'm the one that chose to leave. And he goes, wow, you think that you don't grieve if you're the one that chose to leave them? And I just rebutted with my honest, like that's the level of education I had. I said, well, yeah, don't you only grieve when something's taken away from you? And that was just the definition of, yeah, that's that's what I thought you'd love that. Yeah, like it's probably yeah. worth a podcast in itself is like, yeah. and just having some conversations with him about like I'm going through a grieving process. And I was just, that baffled me. I loved it though. I loved the education side of it as well as having chats that were like quite uncomfortable sometimes. I just, I love that approach of coaching and mentoring in energy medicine where it's like, we'll have some uncomfortable moments, but we're going to talk about some kick-ass shit too. You get to learn stuff. Yeah. And I really like that combination of like, wow, that one. That one I'll always remember. That's changed my life in regards to dealing with grief. Um, yeah, really hit home for me when uh, when I took a voluntary redundancy. Now I'd, mm. I'd spoken to lots of people who'd who'd been made redundant and they were going through all this uh, pain and rejection, and and it's like, hang on, like I'm feeling the same shit. I'm feeling a sense of rejection because I chose to leave, mm. and I'm feeling hurt because of X, Y, and Z, and it's like it doesn't actually the moment itself doesn't matter it's the impact it has on you is what determines whether it's grief or not if it feels like loss it's loss and we have these mini moments all through our life and it's i look at it like this we can identify with the big moments i reckon most of those we tend to process it's the little moments that causes the biggest problem because mm -hmm. we think they're nothing but they create behavior patterns which impact us until we decide to change them and whether it's drinking or gambling or just something to do with your relationships mm -hmm. or how you go about your day-to-day -day, it's all impacting yeah would there be any thoughts on this like when you talk there i think often if let's just take the context of grieving on a socially acceptable level i've lost someone physically that i was very close with some group one of the ways i'd look at that is well is it that event or is that the vent, the straw that broke the camel's back because now it's socially acceptable for you to feel it? Like, do you, what, what are your thoughts in that regards to all of those little agree. moments of grief and then someone, we lose someone and then it's like, what, there could be this, like, this is, some people, you know, they experience it like, this has got to be too much. Like, I know I love them dearly, but this is too much. And is there any point of view where you look at, well, hang on, where is this a straw that broke the camel's back? Where is this grief a progression of 15 other griefs that you've been through that you never knew? 100%. Go back and listen to episode one, Tom, and I talk about uh, this, like things like in Australia, Anzac Day, right? Remembrance Day. It's like the one day of the year where men feel comfortable being emotional. Mm. And then when you have those big moments, right? So my dad's passing, like I'd suppress so much, but it made it okay for me to process big, big stuff. And yeah, so of course I was grieving the fact that he was lost, but it was all of these, the unresolved and unknown that I talk about, which is the, the whole idea behind this podcast, it's all of that stuff. And that's a tsunami that just keeps coming and coming wave after wave. When you think you've dealt with it, it's those bits and pieces that just continue to come. So, yeah, I, I agree with that totally. And to me, this is, this is the work. If you want to tweak 
your performance to a whole other level, then it's diving into those those small moments. Like like I said, the the realization for me around that moment when I was three, I might have even been younger than three. Like, oh man, that's what's been driving that part of my behavior for so long. And then, you know, the the, the gambling when I realized it it wasn't the getting the money, it was the rush. The rush when you hit a jackpot. Like that's what I was searching for. I was just had no, I had no meaning. I had no fulfillment in my life. And when you start learning these behavior patterns, how they were formed, sometimes not even how they were formed, but just how they're still impacting you and then being able to rewire. So I talked about this on my socials this week. It's like language is a software of the, of the mind. Change the story in your mind and you, you can change anything. Mm. So great point. <laughs> Yeah, and, and those who haven't go back and listen to episode one because of my, <laughs> my my own journey through that, right? Yeah, beauty. I definitely will, mate. Hmm. I think it was episode one. It's either episode one or two, but uh, you'll find it there somewhere. <laughs> so, so, um, what what I'd love to hear more about Tom is actually how if you've got time because we've already gone an hour and 20 that just seemed to go in a blink of an eye probably the fact that i disappeared for about 10 minutes <laughs> sped it up but i'd love to hear more about what it is you actually do and, and how you help people because i i think if anyone's listening to this and, and the story is resonating they're like well actually I, I need to learn more about this then then where do they what how would you describe the process you take people through and where can they find you uh, I run a company called Drink Less, Feel Fresh, and we honestly believe in choice and freedom rather than abstinence or need. If you choose abstinence, we got your back. But if you need abstinence, we're probably not the process for you. Um, if, if you want to change your relationship with alcohol and you're sick and tired that you have to be compared or thrown into the compartment of being clinically diagnosed or going to a secret meeting and it's not suiting you, then come and rock out with us. We, we passionately, excitedly, um, mix uh, entertainment and education. What that means is we run short, sharp, short, sharp detoxes and challenges every month for our members. So we run a, a drink less, feel fresh membership community. And I don't know if you know, uh, you become a feel fresh member. And <clears throat> one of the things I've learned is that when it comes to living with choice and freedom regarding alcohol, the first step that we have to understand is that if we're a big drinker or we just have an, an on and an off switch, so we're either habitual drinkers three glasses to a bottle or two a night or where we don't drink midweek, but when we drink, we Charlie Sheen, just drink until we fall on the floor. Yeah. Um, those are the kind of the two categories. And then you've got the habitual binge drinker who traditionally more so the clinical approach is right. If you can't get up in the day, if you can't get through a work day without drinking, like if you can't show up to life, we're probably not the company for you. But if yeah. you know that you're just using alcohol to get through the day and that you've got life beyond that and you want to start increasing your performance, then we'll probably be for you. So one of the things we've noticed is that the, over the past five years running the company is that the best way to teach someone to change their relationship with alcohol long-term is number one, teach them how to not need alcohol. So which means commit to a short, sharp detox. Now, this is controversial, but I knew about living with choice and freedom. Yes, but in the long run. One of the hardest things you can do is what everyone tries, which is I'll try to drink in moderation. I'll just have three beers tonight instead of four. I'll just have six beers instead of 12. Yeah. Once you start to detox, what you do is, as you said earlier, when you start to change the thinking, you start to change the language, you start to change the outcome. So you want to change. Most people have a relationship with alcohol where it's just this. I drink and I drink a lot. I drink and I drink a lot. I drink and I drink a lot. The next relationship you want to create is I don't have to drink. 
It's hard, but I don't have to drink. It's hard, but I don't have to drink. Then you've got choice already because you got, okay, I can either drink and drink heavy. Shit, I know how to do a detox three, seven, 30 days. So now you've got choice. For our longer term members, they get into the third avenue, which is both my business partner, Nat Hodges and I, which we kind of rock and roll with, which is drinking in moderation, which is having a couple of drinks and wrapping up, which takes training. Um, but it's definitely for a lot of people. So the reason, the way that we run our Drink Less Feel Fresh membership community is people become Feel Fresh members and they join our community. Um, and every month we run three, five and seven day detoxes because the only thing anybody needs to learn in life is two things. Number one, can I have permission? Do I have permission to experience a detox? And number two, do I have a support system or method to follow in that detox? Um, so those are the two things that people need to learn. I'll just say them again because I was distracted there. That's the beautiful woman that got me to change my life. My mum's actually visiting at the moment. Awesome. Um, so step one is how do I give myself permission to detox and drink less? That comes through education. The reason why we know that is behavioural specialists, 99% of change comes from awareness. How do you become aware? Educate yourself. That's it. You learn something new. You yeah. become more aware. You can then make a different choice because you're educated and then you create change in your behavior. That's the simplest way I can say it. Education leads to awareness. Awareness means you can make more choices, different choices, change your behavior. And so, yeah, we run a community that's constantly educating. And then every month we run a challenge and we get people and we let people know we're running a three-day challenge, five-day challenge, 30-day challenge. Who's in? We get a bunch of those members go, yeah, I want to do it this month. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of our philosophy and our strategy at the same time. And we just notice that if you keep helping people run short, sharp detoxes, um, it's, uh, it still baffles me. For some reason, 90 plus percent of them end up going over time. Yeah, I don't want to drink that much. Yeah, I didn't really need to drink this night. Um, because you keep giving your body a reference point of what life is like without alcohol. It is a completely different approach and strategy to Ian never drinking it. Because you don't get that. You get no feedback from the universe suggesting, what do I want to do? What does Ian want to do? What does Tom want to do? Oh, Tom wants to have a beer with his dad, but apparently he's not allowed. We can't do that. So you're never testing and measuring. You're never testing the waters. You're never seeing, here's what I want to say, you're never seeing what you're capable of. Let's feel fresh. Our whole system is run by, we will help you see what you're capable of yourself. We don't tell you to detox. We'll give you the opportunity to detox with us. Um, and chances are you have a good time. I'll goosebumps through that. Let's see what you're. <laughs> let's see what you're capable of. Oh, mate, I love it. Um, it makes me think of a conversation I had this week. It's like everything can become a habit, and when you build in different habits, like you're describing about detoxing, and and then suddenly when you experience something different, you're like, well, actually, that felt good. That felt better. I want more of that. The, the easiest way I relate it to people is around um, their diet and their exercise. And the diet can be food, it can be alcohol, it can be whatever else it is. And then the exercise, and it's like when you start doing one, more of it, you want more of it. Mm. The moment you fall back to the other one, after a short period of time, you want to do more of that because it just feels comfortable or whatever it is. That, that is the key, to give someone space to own they want more. That is yeah. the key. They want more as opposed to apparently I need more. Yeah. It's yeah. always, always choice. And, and in an industry that we work in that, that there's so many people saying, here's your process, you have to do this, it's got to be this way, this is the only way it'll work. It's like, no, no, what, what if we gave people choice? What if we arm them with the tools and the strategies that's exactly right for them and then they were to make choice? Like, like how much oh, better would the world be? That's it. And that's we have a community 
And so many of them have different, like imagine if we were a community and everyone was sober. It'd be like the traditional approach. We have a community. People come in and we go, what do you want to experience? Oh, to be honest, it'd be nice to be a midweek drinker. Oh, there's Dave, Shelley. That, that's what they do these days. They never knew how to not drink. Now they just drink on the weekends. I got a, a member in the community who goes, I'm happy with how much I drink, but as long as every year I have a 30-day detox and I do it four times a year. So people are just, we ask people, what is your ideal relationship with alcohol? Mine was, I want to be able to finish a game of golf, have a beer with my dad. I want to be able to go to Hawaii with my wife and have a cocktail. Can I do those things? Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's about creating, what does my ultimate relationship with alcohol look like? And that's what we specialize in. What, is it, what do you want it to look like? Here's some ways that will help you get there. Um, and that's what I love about our community. It's, it's judgment-free. Individuals are just, they have different... Uh, different levels of alcohol intake. It's not the conversation we're having. We're having conversations about are you happy, you're proud, you join your family environment, et cetera, et cetera. Love it. And you're not and you don't become dependent on the system either, right? You're empowering. Mm. Yeah, well, the last thing you want to do is become addicted to the system. That is the deepest form of distrust. Um, you know, again, like the system's taken away, how are you gonna operate? Like you gotta it's another unfortunate thing. Traditionally, people feel addicted and they need the system. I hear it all the time. I need to get to my meeting. I need to get to my meeting. Where's the whole like, oh, I can't wait to get to my meeting. Can't wait to get to my meeting. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. That's why we love running the challenges. We put it out there. Like, Let's say we're doing one next week. A business partner, he's our behavioral specialist, Nat Hodges. He's running a five-day detox on the art of grounding yourself. So it's always education and entertainment at the same time. Um, and we put it out there and we say, who's up? And we get a handful of people that want to jump in and those that don't. It's like, cool, go do your own thing. But it's funny, so often we, we put the invitation out there and these people come back and we, we assume that they're not doing too well and they go, oh, I'll jump in, but just so you know, I'm already 12 days into a detox. <laughs> oh, this is great. <laughs> awesome. Um, where can people join the membership and where can people find you, Tom? Uh, drinklessfeelfresh.com jump in there there's a heap of free resources if you're not too sure where to start but you're kind of like enjoying this conversation you told me the idea of like oh this could be cool just jump onto the website there's some free sobriety hacks on there some free blogs that will definitely get your thoughts stimulated um, and other than that I'm a human being Tom Cartwright on Facebook feel free to add me drop a comment in there send me a private message I'm very approachable send me a private message let me know that you listen to this podcast and if there's anything any questions you ever have about how to drink less or change your relationship with alcohol just ask them and I can vouch for that, very approachable. Like I reach out to people uh, on on socials and ask them if they want to come on a podcast and and quite often people are a bit like, fuck, what's this bloke want? Because that's what it's like, right? It's a bit of a someone someone messages you unprompted, but uh, you, you weren't like that at all. And when I asked and you said yes, I'm like, cool, this is going to be a great chat. And I don't <laughs> know, I can't remember one that went this long for a long time, which just says to me that I was quite engaged in this as well. So well done. Um, but yes. I, mate, I, <laughs> I really enjoyed this, Tom. Great chat. Thank you for sharing so openly and, and sharing your wisdom and, and resources for people to reach out and find as well. You're so welcome, my man. Thank you very much for having me. Anytime. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.